Welcome back to Microcast, a production of the student and postdoc chapter of ASM in the Texas Medical Center. I'm Naomi. I'm John. I'm Belkis. And I'm Aisha. Today, we'll be discussing the flu. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> what it is, what's meant by the flu season, why is this one particularly bad. We're going to discuss some of the science behind the flu, um, and most importantly, how you can prevent um, getting it and at least, or um, making sure it's not as bad this year. All right, so I guess I'll start with what is the flu? So the flu, is a, it's a respiratory virus that infects the cells of our upper respiratory tract. So our nose, our throat, our, yeah, and sometimes our lower respiratory tract as well, which is our bronchioles and our lungs. Um, it causes inflammation and triggers an immune response. And these can lead to some of the symptoms that we're most familiar with, such as fever and coughs or throat, runny or stuffy nose. Um, muscle or body aches, that's very telltale of the flu. Headaches, fatigue, being extremely tired. And some people um, actually also feel, end up experiencing vomiting and diarrhea. But this is really more common in very young children rather than adults. So humans may be affected with this uh, flu virus and contagious one to three days before they even know they have the flu, before they start to feel the symptoms of the flu. The symptoms typically last in the range of a few days to a week, but in older patients or very young patients, they can last up to two weeks. Um, most healthy patients with relatively healthy immune systems are contagious uh, for five to seven days after the onset of symptoms. So once you start to feel sick, you may be contagious for about a week. Um, and again, it's longer for those who are comprom with compromised or underdeveloped immune systems. Um, so be aware of that. So some of the complications of the flu are secondary infections, uh, which is what we're seeing a lot of this year. So while the immune system is tired and fighting the flu, a person can come down with a secondary viral or bacterial infection. And this is um, typically an infection of the lungs because what do we do when we're sick with the flu? We lay in bed and we're inactive. And so we're not moving the mucus around in our lungs and clearing uh, possible pathogens. Um, in severe cases, this secondary infection can lead to sepsis, which is a system-wide infection, which can lead to septic shock. What is septic shock? It's basically a condition in which our body is overwhelmed with immune effectors and signals and starts to shut down organ by organ. Um, so the people that need to watch out for this kind of complication and secondary infections are infants and young children, um, elderly adults with compromised immune systems, or sorry, elderly adults and patients with compromised immune systems, um, and also uh, patients with, other, with respiratory issues such as asthma um, need to be aware and be careful about this. And some of the signs of a secondary infection are um, new and uh, recurring fevers. So if you had the flu and you had fever, but then your fever went away for a couple of days, and now you're starting to feel feverish again, go see a doctor because this may be a sign of a secondary infection. Um, okay, so how do you get the flu? <laughs> Uh, the virus is transmitted through the air in tiny droplets when we breathe, uh, when we speak, when we cough, and so on. The virus maintains its infectivity on surfaces for up to 24 hours. So it's really important to be washing your hands after touching things, especially in public places, um, and disinfecting surfaces are good um, around your house and work um, are good practices to help prevent the flu. Ultimately though, um, getting the flu shot is your best bet for preventing it um, or at least reducing the severity of the flu, especially this flu season, 
um, it's going to help with reducing the severity rather than preventing, but it can be the factor between life and death. And so it's super important. Um, so now that I've gone on my spiel, let's hear a little bit from John about what the flu season is and what we can expect, I guess. All right. Thanks, Naomi. So every year the, the flu season occurs uh, annually during the cold, cold season in each hemisphere. Uh, in the U.S., this is usually from November to March. Uh, in each location, when the flu infectivity begins, uh, the major periods uh, usually occurs over a period of six weeks. Now, why exactly flu season uh, happens in the cold, cold weather months is, is not exactly known, but there's a few reasons that scientists uh, put out there. The first is that due to the cold weather, people tend to stay in, indoors more and they're, they're in contact with, with each other more frequently. This leads to the spread of the virus more quickly. Uh, also, uh, it, it has been shown in some animal studies uh, that cold temperatures uh, lead to drier air and this, de this dehydrates our mucous membranes. And when our mucous membranes are dehydrated, it uh, reduces the ability of us to defend against the kind of the infectivity of the virus. So flu season this year is the worst since 2009 swine flu. Experts say this is because the flu this year hit almost all the states at the same time and it has stayed at very high levels nationally for more than three weeks. So right after, right after the holidays this year, there was a rapid ramp up of flu. Uh, experts say this is due to the children spreading the virus when they returned to school. Uh, these events kind of led to a perfect storm uh, to start a really uh, severe flu season that has ramped up dramatically in uh, the last few weeks of this, of, of this month. Wow, amazing. So um, next we're going to be uh, telling you about what the types of virus, uh, influenza viruses that cause the flu. There are actually four types of influenza viruses, type A, B, C, and D. The human influenza A and B viruses are the ones that cause the seasonal epidemics of disease during the winter. Influenza type C infections are, are um, usually cause uh, mild respiratory illnesses and they don't usually cause like uh, major epidemics. And the fourth type influenza D virus primarily affects cattle and it's not known to affect um, people or cause disease in people. Um, so the most common types of flu are the influenza A and B and are the ones that um, you can find in the vaccine. Influenza A uh, can be classified into subtypes and this is based on proteins that are found on the surface of the viruses. These proteins are called hemagglutinin and neuraminidase. And these proteins are responsible for attaching the uh, virus to the human cells. And this allows the virus to cause disease. Um, the, so as I mentioned, these uh, proteins are, are the ones that are used to classify the virus, the influenza A virus. So uh, as you might have heard, um, influenza A, we can find H1N1 and H3N2, and this is based on the different subtypes of these um, proteins. So an interesting thing about the influenza virus is that they can actually change. So when a new and very different influenza A virus emerges, it can cause an influenza pandemic. And this is different from 
the epidemics that we uh, find every year during the winter. So pandemics are, can actually get spread uh, very quickly. And uh, the last pandemic that we had happened in the spring of 2009 when a new influenza A virus, uh, the H1N1, uh, emerged. So, I uh, that. that was pretty bad. Yeah. <laughs> I think we were all freaking we were all out. Yes. <laughs> so, um, this is actually very serious because uh, most people are have not been exposed to this new virus and this is why we uh, don't have any immune response. We have not developed an immune response and we're very susceptible to the disease and also to spreading it very quickly. Um, and uh, uh, so this, uh, the last epidemic that we had, the last pandemic that we had was actually uh, the first one in more than four years. So now this H1N1 uh, pandemic virus has been established and is the one that we uh, find uh, circulating in humans nowadays as well. All right, so let's talk about the virus itself and uh, what it really does and how it kills cells in the human body. Um, so the virus that causes the flu is the influenza virus and it's an infectious agent that can only replicate within a host organism. Uh, viruses normally can infect a, a variety of host organisms, bacteria, plants, animals, um, and they're so small uh, and uh, they're microscopic that we actually need a microscope to visualize them and they're very simple, relatively more simple than other cells uh, that we know in nature. Um, a virus particle is entirely dependent on its host uh, to survive. So it consists of a genome, which is genetic material that codes for proteins, uh, and a shell called a capsid, and that's pretty much it. Uh, viral genomes are very diverse. They can be DNA, RNA. So the influenza virus is part of a family of viruses called the RNA viruses. Uh, so these viruses have single-strain RNAs, which are the genetic material that code for proteins that it uses to enter the host cell. Uh, so the host cell that it's infecting, uh, in the case of the flu, is epithelial cells. So these are the cells that are on the surface of the inside of our nose or throat or lungs. Um, like Naomi said, the upper the lower respiratory tract. Um, and it's able to use the host cell ultimately to replicate and survive and eventually kill the cell. Uh, so once you are infected by the flu, it essentially starts a chain reaction that's quite fascinating that in the worst of cases can lead to death. Uh, so the viral replication process uh, begins when a virus infects its host by attaching to uh, the host cell and penetrating the cell wall or the membrane. And Belkis talked about one of the proteins that are important for this process, which is the H, uh, that's, uh, that stands for hemagglutinin in H1N1 or H5N1. And this is a spike-like protein that allows it to get inside the host cell. Uh, once it's inside, uh, the genome or the genetic material is uncoded and injected into the host cell. Uh, and this is uh, the most fascinating part, I think, where the viral genome actually hijacks the host cell's own machinery and utilizes it, uh, itself um, to, to basically uses it for its own advantage, forcing it to replicate the viral genome and produce viral proteins to make new capsids. Uh, so the viral particles are assembled and these are new viruses that are, that are made and these new viruses burst out of the cell um, which is a process called lysis. And during this process, uh, you basically, the, the viruses are able to use the host's own membrane 
uh, to form that capsid. And this is where the N in the H1N1 or the H5N1 comes in, which is the neuraminidase, uh, which is an enzyme that helps the virus get out. So once the virus is out, it can infect any neighboring host cell, um, and this is basically how it does uh, the damage. So unfortunately, in terms of uh, treatment, there really isn't a pill um, or any kind of cure that you can take to get rid of it. Um, something that's really important is antibiotics don't work. So this is a virus. Antibiotics only kill bacteria. Um, so that's definitely not something that's used for the flu. However, there are a few um, antiviral drugs that are not known to cure, but they're known to shorten the duration of the illness itself. Uh, so for example, something that's very popular is Tamiflu. Um, this is a neuraminidase inhibitor, so it actually inhibits the enzyme that viruses use to burst out of cells. Uh, so essentially, it keeps the virus in a cell and prevents it from spreading to cells around it. Uh, so all of these antivirals uh, normally prevent the spread of the virus itself and shorten the duration of the infection. But ultimately, the most uh, common advice that's given uh, to kind of get rid of the flu is to rest and drink plenty of fluids. Um, there's a lot of over-the-counter cold and flu remedies that can alleviate some of the symptoms. Uh, Naomi covered some of the most important symptoms like fever, nausea, uh, chills, uh, throat, sore throat, so coughing. Um, so there are, you know, things like aspirin that may relieve some of the fever and aches. Uh, but again, it's important to, to kind of know uh, what can cause side effects because aspirin, for example, can cause side effects in children and adolescents. Um, during the flu. Um, so I guess it's kind of the only thing that you can really do is kind of wait it out and not spread it to other people. Chicken soup. Chicken chicken soup. Chicken soup is the yeah. answer. <laughs> it is it is the answer to it's most warm, things. It's delicious. <laughs> it Staying gives you electrolytes. Home. Yeah, stay home from work. Please don't spread this. Yeah, um, you kind of have an obligation um, during the time that you definitely have the flu to not go around and give it to other people that you work with. Um, but, you know, with that, we kind of can transition to our expert segment today with a pediatric infectious disease physician to discuss the flu vaccine. So welcome to our expert segment uh, that we're doing on the flu vaccine. We're here today with Dr. Pedro Piedra, who is a pediatric, a pediatric ID doc at uh, Baylor and as well as a researcher working on uh, the flu vaccine and the virus itself. Uh, so welcome. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Um, so the, we'll ask you a couple of questions to get some of our listeners um, more aware of what the flu season looks like and give them more information about the virus specifically. So why do we need to get vaccinated on a yearly basis? Well, that's an excellent question. And what happens with flu is that it changes. And every year there is at least one of the four strains that circulate changing. And in order to be able to provide the best level of protection, we need to be able to change the vaccine formulation to account for those changes. Okay, um, so you mentioned there was there's constant um, circulation in the one of at least one in four strains, right? Um, so how do you determine which strains to formulate into a vaccine every year? So uh, that's again a very good question, and and sometimes we're right, very few, not very few times. Sometimes we're wrong, uh, and what we do is we rely on. Uh, a surveillance. It's a worldwide surveillance for influenza. And uh, the surveillance uh, network is set up both in the northern and southern hemisphere. And we look to see what viruses are circulating and whether the viruses that are circulating are similar to the ones that we have in the vaccine or they're different. Uh, the southern hemisphere viruses tell us a lot about what we may be seeing this coming year. For example, 
the major viruses that were circulating this coming year is the H3N2, uh, influenza A uh, subtype H3N2. And generally when H3N2 circulates, it tends to cause a lot more mortality and morbidity uh, throughout the season. So we would expect that this year uh, we will see more deaths, more hospitalization, in particular in the older adults. Okay, um, so you mentioned H3N2. So I guess for, for listeners that are less aware of the nomenclature, how, how do, what does H1N1 mean? What does H3N2 mean? What's the difference? So there are two major types of viruses, influenza viruses, um, influenza type A and influenza type B. Actually, there's a third that's influenza type C, but that one we don't see that much. The two major types that we see in circulation are A and B. Within the A, uh, there are two major subfamilies that infect humans. There are many more subfamilies or subtypes that infect other animals, birds in particular. So the ones that infect humans are the H3N2 and the H1N1. Both the H and the N stands for two proteins that are expressed on the cell surface of the virus, the hemagglutin and the neuraminidase. And then, depending on the type, they have numbers, uh, and that is primarily by sequences. Okay. And each of those subtypes, over time, drift. And when we say that they drift, is that they have uh, minor mutations in the areas that are close to the antigenic regions of the protein. And when that occurs, uh, it is easier to evade the immune response, the host immune response. And because of that, we need to be able to reformulate vaccines when we see a new virus drift. Mm -hmm. Now, in any given year, uh, we may only have to reformulate one, generally at most two of the viruses, of four of the vaccine viruses. So it's not all of them, it's just one or two that are being reformulated. Okay. Um, so you, yeah, you mentioned some of the subtypes tend to be better at evading the immune system and then potentially more dangerous. Um, so a lot of people in the past few years have been aware, at least through media sources, of bird flu. Um, and they hear that and then they hear the regular flu. So what is the difference and why is one more dangerous and uh, of a pandemic nature, whereas the flu is, I guess, less perceived to be dangerous? So, so let me start with the seasonal or regular flu. Uh, people underestimate its impact that it has on our community. And when I say our community, I'm talking about the United States. Think about that every year, somewhere between five to 20% of the population within a two month to three month period gets infected with flu. Mm -hmm. That causes hundreds of thousands of hospitalization mm -hmm. each year, uh, anywhere from 20 to 50,000 deaths wow. each okay. year. And this is just the United States? And this is the United States. Okay. And direct cost is at least $10 billion. And when you put indirect costs as well as costs from uh, missed work and societal right. impact, right. it goes up to $80 billion. This is annually? Annually. Okay. This is regular flu. Wow. Okay. So, so it's kind of a misnomer. Now, right. most people that get infected with flu will not be hospitalized. Mm -hmm. But I will guarantee you that when you normally get infected with flu, you want to miss work. 
right. uh, or you want to miss school, <laughs> right. and you don't feel well, and it takes about two to three weeks to recuperate. Wow. Uh, and so it has a tremendous impact on our productivity um, and on our overall health. And when you have underlying conditions, health conditions, it makes it all that worse. Mm-hmm. Um, that's regular flu. Influenza in birds and wild uh, uh, birds mm-hmm. or avian influenza mm-hmm. uh, normally does not infect humans well. And so we have at least two major uh, viruses out there that we're watching out for uh, that are avian flu viruses, the H7N9 and the H5N1. Uh, The H7N9 is primarily circulating in China, the H5N1 in China, Asia, and other countries. The reason that we worry a lot about these viruses is their pandemic potential. And pandemic potential means Viruses that we have not seen, I won't say ever, but in a long, long time. Basically, the population hasn't seen it. And if it's able to transmit readily within the human population, it'll just go gangbusters. Uh, It will circulate very quickly. A good example of this is not too long ago, in 2009, we had the pandemic H1N1. Mm-hmm. It was rather than a bird flu, it was a swine flu mm-hmm. that was a, a recombination of many different genes of birds, pigs, and humans. Uh, and we had not seen that virus in our population in the world. And it, it, I would say it was first detected in Mexico around mid-March of 2009 and by uh, mid-June of 2009, it had spread throughout the world. Mm -hmm. And we saw the first wave. Mm -hmm. And then the second wave occurred uh, more or less in October. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so this was a milder pandemic. It was not associated with a high mortality rate, Mm -hmm. uh, but it caused a lot of uh, disease. And in particular in the healthy young adults and pregnant women mm-hmm. and children. Uh, and this has been the virus that has replaced what we used to call seasonal H1N1. Mm-hmm. It's now all the H1N1 subtypes that we see now originate from this pandemic 2009. Okay. So the, the current vaccine that we are getting is against that virus? It, that's just like one of them, yes. Oh, yeah. so, so the, there are two major formulations of influenza vaccines, the trivalent and the quadrivalent. Mm-hmm. The trivalent formulation contains both uh, influenza A subtypes, so H3N2 and H1N1, and one of the B lineages. Okay. The quadrivalent contains both B lineages. Okay. For example, this year the trivalent, the major B lineage it contains is against B victoria. But the main virus, B virus, that we're seeing, at least prior to the flu season starting right now, is B Yamagata-like um, virus. And so the trivalent, especially for children, might not cover well uh, if it continues to be B Yamagata, but the quadrivalent will. And that was one of the reasons why the quadrivalent was uh, initiated back in around 2011, 2012 to ensure that it covers all the regular or seasonal flu viruses that could potentially be in circulation. Mm-hmm. 
so the two sub A types and the two B sub lineages. And so this will prevent um, people from getting two flus in a season, or yes. would hope yes. would aim to prevent yes. that. Because in theory, we could get the, sub, One, the A subtype, and then that's correct. They okay. can co-circulate, but mm -hmm. we normally see the B viruses come in a little bit later okay. uh, compared to the A viruses. Got it. Okay, um, so I think one, one important thing that you mentioned is there are certain subtypes that have pandemic potential, and you said H5N1 was the major reservoir was birds, and H1N1 the major reservoir was swine. So if you, if you can, um, essentially you're constantly surveilling, sur surveying for these subtypes, but if you can tell that there's a risk of them spreading in a larger capacity to the human population, can you begin va producing vaccinations? for including those subtypes and then kind of prevent the dissemination? Is that, is that something that's possible? So you're asking two different things. Okay. So, so first let me just go back a few steps and say that all the subtypes that are present generally or the vast majority are found in birds. Okay. Uh, whether it be H1N1, H3N2, H5N1, H7 and 9. So they're, they're the found, main reservoir. Their okay. birds are the main reservoirs of your influenza A viruses. Got it. Okay. Every once in a while, they jump the okay. animal and infect humans. Okay. In order to do that, uh, they need to obtain certain mutations, mm -hmm. when, or, or basically uh, mutate, uh, and have certain changes that allow the virus to easily transmit within, within humans. Mm -hmm. When that happens, mm -hmm. when avian or swine virus from pigs, when that occurs, then you can have a pandemic virus, mm -hmm. like we saw with the uh, H1N1 uh, pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, the H7N9 and the H5N1 infect humans. When they do, they have very high mortality rate right now, mm -hmm. uh, anywhere from 30 to 50%. They'll wipe out a population if they get pandemic, if they get they the spread. mutations to spread. But generally when they get the mutations to spread, their mortality uh, that causes decreases significantly. Mm -hmm. So there's a fitness cost for them? There's a, a nicely the fitness cost mm -hmm. uh, in the sense that it's not so much a fitness cost because death is not good right. So from a virus. <laughs> mm -hmm. So they have right. actually a fitness gain I see. Okay. because they're not it's not killing or wiping out the host, right? Okay, so they so, need to persist so, longer. So, yeah. so it allows you really to have multiple chains of transmission. Okay. So, so in a way they have uh, one, uh, a fitness gain, but in that process they generally become more attenuated. Okay. But just so that you have a, a feel for what bad pandemics can do, you all may or may not be aware of the 1918 Spanish pandemic. Mm -hmm. That's like the mother of mother mm -hmm. pandemics, no? But that had a mortality rate of about 1%. Mm -hmm. And yet, worldwide, it caused millions and millions of deaths. Mm -hmm. These viruses are very infectious. Mm -hmm. Now imagine if you have an H7N9 mm -hmm. that has a mortality rate of 30% mm -hmm. plus, mm -hmm. be nice. able to transmit with that type of virulence, right. it wipes out your population. Right. And so you really want it to, to become less virulent right. because if it doesn't, we're in a world of hurt. Um, 
with that in knowledge that we are susceptible to pandemics, we never know from where it will occur. A good example is we've been worrying about the H5N1, um, and then what pandemic hit us? The swine, right. 2009. Right. We worry about isolates or viruses from China because that's often a major source for new pandemics. But flu is very unpredictable. Mm -hmm. This one came from Mexico uh, and did not come from birds. It originated from pigs. Mm -hmm. And so what that tells us is that we have to be very vigilant and be able to have good surveillance networks, not only of humans, but also of birds, of pigs, which we do, mm -hmm. uh, in order to see whether there are anything right. changing uh, and whether these viruses are gaining mutations that make them, yes, uh, more transmissible. Okay. Now, in preparation for potential pandemics, we have uh, developed H5N1 and H7N9 vaccines. Okay, we do. Okay. Yes, but what you're asking was preemptive vaccination, mm -hmm. and that would be very difficult uh, be to, to be able to generate what you're asking now is billions of doses mm -hmm. um, and, and give it, and not knowing uh, whether that vaccine strain that you, whether the strain that you used to formulate the vaccine is the same one that's going to cause the pandemic mm -hmm. because they change, they drift, mm -hmm. they don't stay static. Uh, but part of that is we take that into account, and so we look at old strains mm -hmm. um, and then also vaccinate or revaccinate with newer lineages and see how well uh, the antibody responses. So those stu studies are actually ongoing. Okay. They're ongoing through the vaccine treatment evaluation unit, okay. units that are uh, funded by NIH. Okay. Uh, and hopefully uh, as we get these type of vaccines, uh, one can make enough to be able to basically, in a way, hoard. Okay. Uh, but not huge numbers, no, because you don't know. So the other problem that we have is that these vaccines don't last forever. They have expiration date. And so it's not like you can uh, put them and store them forever. You don't. They have to uh, expire, and then you have to throw them away. Okay. Uh, and so this process is, is a continual process that you're making vaccines, you're testing them, and you're being prepared in case we do have a pandemic right. uh, with the knowledge that you then have mm -hmm. to really turn up the number of vaccines right. uh, production. Right, so I think that was a good segue into, so you talked about how measures that are being taken to prevent um, at, a, at a scientific level, but I guess from an individual um, perspective, if I wanted to prevent getting the flu and prevents spreading the flu once I have it, um, what can we do on an individual basis to be careful, I guess? So, so, so the best thing, uh, for it's always prevention rather than treatment. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, as a pediatrician, vaccines are very dear to us because they really have uh, changed the face of, of childhood diseases and death that we used to see so often. Um, and so the same applies for flu. In order to not get infected with flu, your best option is to be vaccinated. And that means annual flu vaccination. Uh, and the recommendations in the United States are universal recommendations, which means all individuals six months of age and older are recommended to be vaccinated. For those of y'all who are in the healthcare 
service, mm-hmm. it means that uh, for sure uh, y'all should be vaccinated because y'all are going to be exposed or yeah. going to work in an environment mm-hmm. where there are going to be a lot of susceptibles. Yeah. And I guess um, uh, that there's a group of people that do believe in receiving their regular immunizations, childhood immunizations, but um, are in, there's increasingly a sentiment that the, the yearly flu vaccine is not effective in preventing against the actual seasonal flu. Um, I guess, what, <laughs> why is there this belief? Is there any scientific basis to it? And what would your response be to those people to try to convince them to, in fact, get vaccinated? For sure. So influenza vaccine is a good vaccine, but it's not a perfect vaccine. And so you will have breakthrough infections. And on any given year, you may have higher level of effectiveness than in other years. That can happen. And part of the issue that we have is we have to select the strains that will be included in the vaccine before the outbreak occurs. (laughs) And so it's a very educated guess, uh, having all the information that one has, and you do a selection Uh, And sometimes you're wrong. Sometimes you're wrong with one of the four, one of the three uh, strains included in the vaccine, and that happens. Uh, Depending on which virus is dominant, which virus is your major uh, circulating virus, that mismatch may have an impact or it may not have an impact. Sometimes when there's a mismatch, it still serves as a good vaccine for protection against that mismatch. Other times it does not. But at the end of the day, your best uh, uh, opportunity to be protected against flu, which will come every year, is to be vaccinated. Understanding that we don't have a perfect vaccine, that there will be breakthrough infections, and it's a very safe vaccine. So we understand that. We know that we need to make a better vaccine, and they're in the process of doing that. Um, But at currently, this is the best that we have. And if you look at the Centers for Disease Control net, uh, uh, site on influenza, vac- on influenza uh, morbidity and mortality, you can see that over the last years, there's actually been a downward trend in deaths. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is probably, nobody has stated why that's happening, but a good possibility of why it's happening is our universal uh, vaccination policy. Because the more uh, people who are vaccinated, the better the indirect effect that you can have. So an outbreak can only occur if you have susceptibles. Right. And So these are people that have not been vaccinated. Who, who are correct, who are susceptible to influenza uh, infection. And if you are vaccinated, you basically improve the host or the community uh, immune surveillance pressure in a way and make it much more difficult for the flu to begin. Uh, And oftentimes we've seen, for example, in the last two years, we've seen flu start much later. Mm -hmm. This year is going to be different. This year I think flu is going to, actually flu is already here. Uh, Not in, in, not strong yet. The major virus that's circulating now, it's RSV respiratory syncytial virus, Mm -hmm. but we're starting to see uh, isolates of or individuals infected with flu. But my point is that even though we have not had a perfect vaccine, 
because we've had better vaccination coverage mm -hmm. in all ages, six months of age and older, I do believe we're having an impact. And then that impact is indirectly improving or decreasing uh, infection in all in the community. So I guess what you're saying is if you choose to not be vaccinated, that might actually put other people around you or the chance of an outbreak at risk. Oh, it does. Right. With, with any vaccine, it does. So is the idea that um, those of us that get vaccinated, when the flu tries to infect us, it our immune system is trained and therefore fights it, and so we're no longer propagating the virus? So, and so, so the fewer hosts propagating the virus makes it harder to spread? Correct. Okay. So, so the, the way that these vaccines generally work is that it boosts your antibody response. Mm -hmm. And so with higher antibodies, in particular against the infecting virus, it really prevents you from getting infected. Uh, and if you don't get infected, you can't transmit. So it's important even if someone, for our listeners to understand that even if they typically don't get the flu, getting the vaccine helps everyone around them by preventing them from transmitting it further. Correct. So, so you have two benefits from vaccination, uh, especially when you do it in large numbers. You have the direct benefit to the individual that's vaccinated, and you have the indirect benefit to society. Indirect benefit offers a lot of basically protection mm -hmm. to those who, for whatever reason, can't get vaccinated. either can't get vaccinated or did not respond well to the vaccine. Right. For example, if you have cancer and are, and are immunocompromised, mm -hmm. um, or if you're an infant under six months of age, or if you're an older adult, it's harder to uh, be, either you cannot be vaccinated, or if you're vaccinated, you oftentimes will not reap a good immune response. Mm -hmm. But if all those close contacts around you are vaccinated, then you're basically forming a barrier, an immune pressure barrier, mm -hmm. that makes it harder for that individual to be in contact with somebody that's infectious. Okay, I think on that note, that's essentially our biggest takeaway from this podcast, which is to get vaccinated, if not for yourself, for the community, and for people that are less fortunate that can't allot that protection to themselves. I think with that, thank you, Dr. Pieter, for your time and hopefully our listeners will learn a lot more about the flu vaccine and the virus itself from the podcast. All right. Thank you. I can Thank talk you. for much longer. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in and make sure to check out our next podcast on foodborne illnesses. Until next time, stay, stay flu free. Stay healthy. <laughs> <laughs>